0: Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast for 2017. I'm Angie Mazzetti. We have some terrific guests lined up for you for the podcast over the next few months from the worlds of sport, from travel and from business, for starters. But I wanted to start by sharing with you
1: a pearl from last year's recordings. So so I think it's important also to try to to teach the the younger generation that, that we are not finished with, uh, with, with, with fighting for freedom because there are so many other ways of discriminating against people and holding them down, whether it's because they have a different gender or a, a different ethnic background or age, there are so many other ways than, than, than doing it legally. So the law can be really really clear and gender neutral and the reality can, uh, can be really tough.
0: I had the pleasure of interviewing Beate Schoffel, who is Professor of Law at the University of Oslo for the radio documentary, Banking on Women, a BAI funded documentary that's still available to listen to on the News Talk podcast website. Professor Beate Shofel has been recommended or had been recommended to me by a number of people as a leading light in corporate law, particularly when it comes to sustainability, not only of the banking sector, but in a global environmental sense, too. She has so many really interesting things to say and to some people controversial things to say about who owns a company, if anybody, the role of shareholders and how people are appointed to boards that I wasn't able to use in the documentary but I really think is of interest to a wider audience and particularly to anyone who cares about the area of diversity and inclusion and how we need to rethink the whole way that the world does business to
1: ensure sustainability. This is the full interview. Enjoy. My name is Beate Schofiel and I'm a Professor of Law here at the University of Oslo.
0: Do you specialize in any particular type of law?
1: Mm. My main area of law is uh, business law, especially company law. Uh, but I have, since uh, I worked on my doctoral thesis, worked on business law in a broader sustainability perspective.
0: I'm really interested in that word sustainability. We tend to think of sustainability in terms of um, the the use of natural resources, electricity, oil, and gas. But when you think of it, there is a, a bigger picture here, a planetary almost. Mm. Uh, how does gender diversity fit into that bigger picture?
1: Well, first, the, the bigger picture is, as, as, uh, as you indicated, that we, that we have planetary boundaries that everything needs to stay within uh, so that the goal of uh, sustainability can be translated into a goal of achieving a, a safe and just operating space for humanity. So we want to distribute both environmental, natural Uh, and social resources in such a way that uh, everybody uh, living on the planet today and future generations will have their basic needs met for for good lives without us then threatening the planetary boundaries, without threatening the very basis of our existence. Uh, Gender diversity could come into that as a, a contributory factor to bring us away from business as usual, which we know is a very certain path towards a very uncertain future, and and onto a more sustainable path. It could be a, a contribution to achieving the transition that everybody knows we need to achieve and politicians like to talk about, but very few actually do something about.
0: So tell me about Norway. I've been told that Norway leads the way in terms of gender diversity. How did you get to, first of all, tell me about the rule, Was it 11.6a or something like that. Mm. Maybe tell me about that particular, how it came about and maybe about the coup by tabloid. Mm.
1: Well, in Norway there, there was a discussion for, for many years about what we should do about the fact that there are so few uh, female members on, on boards. And uh, there were quite a few people in favour of doing something about it, but there was also a strong resistance from, uh, from business lobbyists who said that this would be better dealt with business and that it was not the, the position of, uh, of legislators to, to tell the, the companies who would be best to have on the boards. So in the end, interestingly enough, it was a, a male a minister of the government that we had in, in 2006 who conducted what could be seen as a coup by tabloids. Because without discussing with anybody in the government, not even with the prime minister, he announced to one of the big tabloids in Norway that uh, we are going to introduce a rule to ensure that uh, there is 40% of each gender on the boards of public companies. What
0: was the reaction to that?
1: Well, as uh, Ansgar, as Gabrielsen, that's the name of the minister, as he himself has told to the newspapers later, he was uh, called into the, the office of the prime minister as soon as the prime minister had said this, and the prime minister apparently practically had smoke coming out of his, out of his ears. But, uh, but it was a successful coup in the sense that it was very difficult for, for anybody in the government then, including the prime minister, to say that, no, uh, we are against this. So it was, it was carried through. Uh, And I think a part of the reason that it was possible to carry it through was that it was not seen as uh, primarily a gender equality measure. It was seen as a necessary measure to improve the corporate governance of Norwegian public companies.
0: What is corporate governance and what what purpose does corporate governance Mm -hmm. serve?
1: Well, corporate governance is just a fancy word for how to govern companies it's uh, it's been coined as a phrase and and been given a lot of attention but it's it's basically just about that how to to ensure that companies are managed and led in such a way that they achieve the goals that they are supposed to achieve but corporate governance has also um, become a uh, a term that uh, that denotes a very mainstream very male dominated uh, area of business where there are very specific ideas about how to achieve this. Um, so where also the idea of then introducing any mandatory rules on gender diversity uh, have, have been frowned on, because the idea there has been that one has to have economic incentives into place to ensure that, uh, uh, that members of the boards and the managers, that they uh, prioritise shareholder interests and keep their eyes on the, on the share, share price because that will then lead to, to better governance of companies. That We have seen, of course, through the, notably the financial crisis, that, that, that it didn't really work that way. But that's, the, the, those are the two meanings that the debate, uh, that name corporate governance uh, has. When it was used here in Norway by, uh, by the, the government saying that we want to introduce gender diversity on uh, the boards of public companies to improve corporate governance, they meant it in the first sense that they wanted companies to be governed, to be led, to be managed in a in a better way.
0: Now, this was in 2006 that it was announced. When did it actually come into being? Mm. The, the rule.
1: Mm. It only came into into effect, came into force in 2008 because the uh, the companies were were given a. Uh, a two-year uh, grace period because they had insisted that they could solve this themselves. So the, the Norwegian government then the legislators did something that was quite innovative. They adopted the rule, and then they said that this will not enter into force if business on aggregate has achieved 40% women on, uh, on corporate boards. And when they didn't, then it entered into force, and then the, the companies had a, another two years to comply with it.
0: And what was compliance? What was the compliance rate like? And were there any objections? Or, you know, did people fall by the way? What were the consequences?
1: The compliance rate at the end of the day was 100%. Because uh, companies uh, knew, or the people running companies, realised that if they didn't comply with this rule, then then at the end of the day, the, the company would actually be dissolved. Which also shows that the Norwegian legislators took this seriously as a as a proper company law rule it wasn't like just some soft uh, corporate social responsibility uh, initiative where please try to improve your gender diversity and please tell us how that is going it was introduced as a as a hard law rule in the same way as we have a rule that we have to have a board and and the public companies have to have boards with, uh, with at least three members, and that they, that they have to send in their annual accounts. So it was treated as, as company law proper, which also emphasizes the fact that it was introduced as something that was meant to improve the way that companies were run. Because this was informed by the idea that if we have boards that are basically only made up of, of people from half of the population, then uh, you're probably missing out on some talent. And in, in Norway, as probably in most countries, it wasn't, it wasn't like board members were selected from half of the male grown male population. It was from a very specific area. So to put a point to it, although I'm being a bit unfair then, we could say that uh, uh, middle-aged white men from Oslo West were replaced by, by women through this rule. So what sort
0: of boards did we end up with, and did people... Did companies try to circumvent the rules by maybe adding more men or adding Mm. women on rather than replacing Mm. women?
1: What was was the replacement rate? How did that work? Mm. Well, companies could have circumvented this rule without the company being dissolved if they had just uh, expanded the board and added uh, female members in addition to the male members that they had. But they, they didn't do that. So, so they actually replaced men with women. And uh, word of the mouth is that uh, mediocre men were replaced by more competent women. Because as generally often in business life, to become a board member, a woman has to be at least as good as, uh, as the men who are already there. And it also improved giv- diversity in, in other ways, because one had to look a bit, little bit further than the normal circles. So apparently Swedish and Danish uh, female board members were invited into Norwegian boards, so, so that also helped open up.
0: Did you end up, though, with a very small pool of very busy women? So you had one woman on three or four boards. Mm. Uh, and you know, how is the pipeline progression for that going to you mm.
1: Well, I, I think we probably, uh, as we have with men, as we've always had with men, we now also have women who, who are very busy sitting on boards. But uh, I have no indication that, that that's a bigger problem for for uh, female board members than it is for, for men.
0: What do you think um, Ireland and Europe generally, what can we learn from Norway's experience of having gender uh, quotas on the as opposed to targets what can we learn in ireland
1: well i think we can uh, i think you can learn from that that uh, the business will object very very strongly uh, and they'll say that it's going to mean the end of business and uh, there will be no businesses left in your country everybody will flag out find another nicer country to, to register their, their businesses in, and that it will be a disaster. And that if legislators then stand firm and actually do this, then it won't be that disaster. Uh, we've only had this rule in Norway for a few years, and when I speak to, to mainstream uh, corporate lawyers now, they say that it's been completely accepted and that the, they, they don't see any problem with it at all. But I think it also illustrates that sometimes the the domination of one gender, in this case male, and the the path-dependent way of selecting board members, that is so strong that you actually need a hard law to to break that.
0: You also have a law in Norway that... Uh, public companies have to have uh, employee representatives. How long has that been in force, and what has been is uh, are, are the relationship between the, the two pieces of legislation? Mm.
1: Well, we, we have uh, rules not only for public companies, but for all companies over a certain size, also for private companies. If they're over a certain size, then employees have a right to, to uh, elect uh, board members. So we don't see them, properly speaking, as employee representatives because they're not on the board to represent the employees, but it's, it's regarded as, uh, as good both for the employees and for the businesses that some of the board members are elected by and, and amongst the employees. So the idea is that this will be, will be good for, for business because then the decisions of the boards will be made by people who are actually working in the company and know where the problems are and uh, decisions by the boards uh, is, is the theory then will be more easily accepted if uh, if some of the board members then will go back to their their day jobs uh, in the in the business and uh, and can then explain also more about the the motivations so so that that's uh, those are rules that we've had uh, had for for decades and in you Norway and there have been been two streams of argument here one of them has been for uh, for employee democracy that employees should, have a say about the place where they work Uh, and the other one which i think came to dominate in the last phases was that again that it would be good for for business
0: Um, i think you got into trouble for saying that companies are not owned by the shareholders i presume this relates to sustainability as well can you tell me what you meant by that and about the reaction that you got to that i think you were talking about a a newspaper Mm -hmm. editorial so maybe you could tell me a little bit about that who owns a company
1: well, um, from, a, from a company law point of view, nobody owns a company. A company uh, is an independent uh, legal entity uh, where various interests have various types of rights, notably the shareholders that, uh, that own shares that give them the right to, to appoint uh, members of the board uh, and, and also dismiss them and, uh, and also have uh, economic rights dependent on the way the company is run and, and what the board proposes. This is quite a simple uh, company law uh, fact that, uh, that shareholders don't own the company in any meaningful legal sense of the word own. Uh, but when I, when I wrote about this in a small piece to a business newspaper in February 2013, I was just correcting somebody who had made an argument based on ownership in a, in a tax debate uh, then that started this this huge outcry that went on for months, where where there were numerous uh, attacks against me by uh, economists who took it uh, on themselves to define the law, and and by investors uh, and often both in the same person.
0: But when you got the reaction, you knew you were onto something.
1: Yeah, that's uh, something that has become clearer and clearer to me over over the last years when I've been doing uh, research on business law in this broader perspective where I'm not just interested, although that is also important, but I'm not just interested in the exact definition of a provision or in analysing the latest case law, but uh, putting business law into a broader perspective and analysing it with the with the aim to, to answer the question of is the way that businesses are organised today the, uh, is that a good contribution to society's overarching goals so in, in that kind of, of research I found out that uh, it will sometimes provoke very strong reactions what I say and I've taught myself to expect that and also to, to see that uh, I've probably managed to phrase it in a convincing way if somebody gets really angry with what I say do
0: you think that women are quite fearless, particularly on boards? I've heard this from other Irish women um, and British women, that when they're on a board, they will ask awkward questions. Uh, one particular woman, Danuta Gray, who was on the board of a major telecommunications company, said that when she was on one board that um, she raised a question and that the chairman said well that's not really on the agenda and we'll mm. move on and she said excuse me it is on the agenda mm. <laughs> and the, you know do you think women have that ability to question and to disrupt I suppose mm. the uh, consensus and the group think mm. is that one of the benefits and are there any other benefits of having mm. more women on more boards
1: mm. well I don't think it's possible to generalize uh, about people based on gender and say that all women are long-term and concerned about sustainability issues and will raise those issues fearlessly while all men are mainstream. I don't think we can say that at all. Even my experience, my own experience from my own colleagues uh, negates that. But I do think that it has a value in itself to, to disrupt groupthink. So like in the typical Norwegian board of a, of a public company, before this rule, where uh, the, the board consisted then typically of middle-aged white men from a specific area in Norway, then I think that there's quite a strong groupthink there. So when an outsider then comes in, I think that may then open up for different kinds of questions. Whether those questions then will be asked, that depends on both that specific board and uh, and the personality of of that woman. I think it's easier, and that's why it's also important with the 40% rule, it's easier if there's more than one woman.
0: The 40% is a of 40% of either gender, is mm-hmm.
1: that it? Okay. It is. The 40% rule is a, is a rule to say that, uh, that boards must have at least 40% of each gender. So if you exceptionally had a, a company that had only female board members, then they would also have to, have to change the, the composition of their board, which I also think is good. I was just going to ask
0: you about the, the the transparent selection process. What do you know about the selection process, and does it have to be documented, or how does how does one decide who gets on a board apart from forty percent being female?
1: Mm. Well, it's the the general meeting that that makes uh, the the decision usually, and this varies from company to company, how the selection process is is done, but it's it's quite common nowadays to to have a committee. Um, made up of some board members who will then propose uh, names that, that these can be decided uh, amongst. But the, 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 the way that these names are chosen may not be very transparent.
0: Okay. You were saying that the um, when women start to be appointed onto boards, there was a lot of Swedish and Danish and other Scandinavian uh, people. Has it filtered back the other way? Has there been an influence from Norway on companies in
1: Denmark and Sweden and Finland mm. do you know well I'm actually quite uh, happy to, to say that the Norwegian rule clearly has had a, a great significance uh, not only in our neighboring countries but internationally because uh, that, uh, that one and even one small country like Norway took the step and introduced something on a mandatory level that others were just talking about whether we maybe should have, a, has, have as targets has sparked a debate internationally so there's country after country where this is being discussed uh, or even adopted, but generally not with, with an as strict uh, rule as in Norway. But I think the more we get of that, even if it's just targets, I think it opens up the debate. It makes it easier to talk about the relevance of gender. I think if we go 20 years back, then that notion might just have been laughed at, but now Uh, also quite mainstream business people need to deal with this in in some way or other. What
0: were the sort of arguments that were put up against the the, um, the gender quotas initially?
1: Well, one of the arguments that was used a lot, which I think we find generally when we talk about having a a better gender diversity, is that it just wouldn't be possible to find uh, qualified women. The, the reaction from business was that, of course, we would love to have uh, competent females on our boards, but we just don't know where they are. But that, that was because they were just looking in the one direction. So the, in the end of the day, when they were forced to do this through mandatory legislation, they found enough competent women. women. Um, but, uh, but I think it also improved diversity in other ways because they, could, they, they needed to look outside of their normal, very small circle, uh, so it was both from, from, other, from other countries and also probably greater diversity in, in terms of age uh, and, and in terms of, of education. And I'm hoping also that at least over time that we will see a greater ethnic diversity as well. Because, for example, here at the law faculty in Oslo, um, students are accepted based only on their grades from high school. So, so there is, there's no way that students can be kept out of the law faculty because they are female or because their parents are from Pakistan, for example. So we will be seeing more and more uh, brilliant female uh, lawyers coming out of this faculty with all types of, of backgrounds and some of them will end up in boards which I think is very good. Uh, a law degree is a very good foundation for, for being uh, on a board. It's, it's regarded as a very relevant education for, for that and of course now when we have more women on the board we also seem to have uh, people with uh, with a higher degree of education because when, when we have to look out of the old boys' network for, for directors or for board members, as we call them here in Norway, then, uh, then they have to look for more objective criteria than just who you know. That's great. That's a very Irish thing of who you know. And, mm. uh, in Scotland, in, I
0: was doing another documentary, and it's, it's, um, they ask, who's your granny? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Where's your family? You know, where your lineage is from? Um, I was asked about that when I started here. You know whether I had any academics. My parents, my grandparents, were academics. Someone I said no to both. And the question was, how how on nice earth did you end up here?
0: Has there been any other um, impact in the in the workforce generally for women? Has it improved the position
1: of women generally in the workforce? Are their prospects better now at mm-hmm. executive level? Well, um, it, as as we have seen so far, the rule doesn't seem to have had any positive effect. Uh, on, uh, on, on the executive level. And interestingly, this is now even used as an argument against the rule by those who were critical to the rule to start with. They're saying that, okay, so it didn't create a total disaster for business having females on the boards. But look, it hasn't helped with gender equality in business uh, generally, which some people hoped that it would, so the rule doesn't work. But I think that rather, rather shows that uh, the male domination is so entrenched that it is necessary in some cases then to use hard law to change it and there has been an opening up of the discussion whether we need some kind of uh, gender diversity rule on the executive level as well i think that might be quite even more difficult to introduce but uh, but certainly there should be more pressure against companies for for finding Uh, Higher uh, for finding uh, female candidates for for higher executive levels. They're still answering in the same way when they appoint a new male CEO of uh, of a big. uh, Norwegian company then they say well we would have liked to appoint a woman but we, we couldn't find any and then uh, then middle managers female are interviewed in the same company and say so you weren't interested oh yes I, I was very interested but I wasn't asked so it seems to be very entrenched this, uh, this male domination um,
0: Did some companies object so much that instead of staying public they went private and you know was there a, a Big increase, a small increase. How did that work out? Mm.
1: Well, one um, alternative that companies had, if the public companies, if they didn't want to comply with this rule, was to to change over and become a private company. And there has been a decrease in public companies in Norway after we got this rule, uh, about with about forty percent actually. So it's quite a big decrease. But we don't know, although some people will say that that is because of that rule, there, there were other changes made in the, around the same time. So we don't know for sure how many were actually motivated uh, by that rule. Uh, actually, uh, empirical studies indicate that not so many were motivated directly by that rule.
0: Norway is not part of the European Union, is it?
1: Well, no- Norway has the uh, pleasure of being a uh, half member of the European Union, because uh, since Norway has only had its independence since nineteen oh five, since we then got out of the Union with Sweden, uh, Norwegian people have twice voted against membership in the European Union. So, so we keep our independence by implementing all of EU company and financial market law without getting to vote over it first. So, we are de facto EU members in that sense because we have the, uh, the, area, the um, agreement on the European Economic Area, which is an agreement between now Norway, Iceland, and Liechtenstein, and all of the EU members and the EU, which covers most relevant areas for, for business with some exceptions as regards to tax.
0: Um, you've heard of the, the carrot and stick approach. Uh, Norway took a very large stick. Were there any other carrot or incentives or targets put out there as well?
1: Well, in Norway, a a pure stick approach was chosen for for this issue, uh, and it worked. And and nothing else had worked before when it was just talk. And I think that gives some interesting insights when we discuss about other important issues, how to ensure that businesses generally shift away from business as usual and onto an environmentally and socially sustainable path. Because what is used there is generally some variations of of the carrot approach. It's asking companies to report on what they are doing and trying to tell them that uh, it would be good for for their reputation, uh, customers will be more interested in them and so on if they just uh, behave a bit nicer and tell us about it. Uh, and, and I think that, uh, that that we have to start seriously considering whether we need more hard law regulation or whether we need a, a more systemic um, total company law reform.
0: I think uh, the argument before the financial crisis was it's light touch regulation, mm-hmm. but it seems to have been that Norway's taken a hard, heavy handed approach. And do you think, particularly because this documentary is to do with banks and finance and the world of money, in particular to do with the world of money, is it more important, do you think, is it more important where finance and the banks are concerned to have um, tough legislation rather than light-touch regulation?
1: I think it's important both for, for the financial companies and for, for the non-financial companies to have a good regulation. I think there's been far too much focus on having light regulation, on deregulation, but we'll always need rules. If we don't have rules, we don't have uh, uh, the, the law of the market, we have the law of the jungle. And, uh, and as we've seen now, the financial crisis have shown us, Panama Papers have shown us, the state of the world shows us that uh, business and finance are really on a very, very wrong path. There's something systemically wrong here. So instead of um, having this dichotomy between hard regulation and the soft touch, we need to sit down and discuss properly what kind of uh, rules do we need, what goals do we have and what rules will achieve what we want to achieve. Hard regulation can be a really bad choice if it's the wrong kind of regulation. So so we need a, a, a totally new debate which needs to be not anymore just on the premises of the corporate lobbyists.
0: So what do you think women bring to boards and to executive uh, leadership? Do they bring a different way of thinking or what's going on there?
1: Mm. Well, I think it's good to increase diversity on boards to break up groupthink. And that also would apply if it was a female-only board. If we had boards with uh, uh, middle-aged uh, females from Oslo West, then I would be very much in favor of bringing in some young males with a different kind of background background. Um, because I think uh, as, uh, as our colleague from, uh, from the Netherlands, Minkiel Luker at Rovers, has also pointed out, groupthink brings with it very uh, important risks, uh, the, the risks of exce- excessive self-esteem, the creation of tunnel vision, and a strong pressure to agree, to come to an agreement. So if you have a, a Davos group, then, then you can get... Uh, better better discussions and, and more open discussions because uh, they're not as a starting point socialized into the, the same set of, uh, of values.
0: I think it also comes back to what we started to talk about is sustainability mm. in the end. I mean, we're talking about sustainability of a company, of a country mm. and the
1: planet in mm-hmm. the end.
0: Would you agree or how do you see that? Mm.
1: Well what we see now where where this very strong shareholder primacy drive, this strong social norm which has become a legal myth that companies have a duty to to maximise returns for shareholders, that is detrimental to everything, it's detrimental to the businesses, to any shareholder that has more than a a, a very short term perspective, so to all institutional investors, it's detrimental to society and to the environment on, on which we depend. So, so to break that up and to, and to mitigate that very strong social norm of, uh, of maximizing returns for shareholders only, uh, I think diversity is a, is a good step here. Uh, there are some uh, empirical studies that, that indicate that uh, bringing more women onto boards will uh, increase The environmental improve the environmental and social performance of the company and the financial performance. I'm I'm quite skeptical to concluding uh, 100% based on the few empirical studies that we have now, because we have to look quite closely at what have they actually studied. There are also studies that indicate that bringing women onto boards will lower profits, Uh, and it's been very interesting then to look at what has actually been lowered because profits. That's what's left when the company has paid what it's supposed to pay and uh, and and has and those profits instead of being paid out to shareholders could have been used to, to keep on more employees, it could have been used for research and innovation. So when we say that there are high profits here that can be paid out as dividends, we are also saying something about what the company hasn't used its money for and not only how much it has earned to start with. And some of those studies that seem to show a negative economic effect of females on boards also then showed that it had a, a better impact on employees. So more money was used on employees. So what will be really interesting is when we can study this effect over a couple of decades. So, but but there, there are absolutely quite a few empirical studies that indicate that it's good. And, and my starting point is that it has to be good to, to break up groupthink, uh, but we mustn't think that that is the only thing that we need to do.
0: Tell me about your own position as a professor here in Oslo University.
1: Mm. Well, I'm actually the only female company law professor in Norway, and the only one who has worked as a, a female company law professor in, uh, in Norway, because the one who became a professor before me, she quit as soon as she became a professor. She's now a Supreme Court judge, so, so she's uh, got a good career as well, but... Uh, but we are uh, indeed a minority, even in the egalitarian Scandinavian countries. And would you be called on to give opinions frequently? Well, uh, the, the press contacts me quite often. Uh, I have been very clear on that I don't want to write legal opinions for, for big law firms or businesses because I see that uh, too many of, uh, of my male colleagues do, do that a lot. Uh, even some to the extent that uh, that they prioritise that over doing research, uh, and for me it has been very important to to just remain completely independent because I think that if you earn maybe nearly, uh, maybe as much or even more as your professor wage by writing legal opinions for businesses and nobody sees those legal opinions, then it, then I think it's difficult to to retain. Uh, your independence, so that's that's been very important for me. So I stick very, uh, very strictly to that. And your credibility, I'm sure.
0: Um, what about the millennials, the young people that are coming into uh, the workforce mm. and coming through academia now? Do you think they have a different perspective on gender, both male mm. and female?
1: Mm. I think it's been, it's been very interesting to see how the students have reacted also when I was involved in this debate in 2013 that went over several months when I just stated the simple company law fact of uh, shareholders owning the shares and not the companies. There was such a lot of opposition against me by male economists and male investors, mainly those, but also some of my male company law colleagues spoke out against me very cleverly, not discussing the law where I was obviously right, but speaking about the terminology in a way that made it sound as if I was wrong. Um, and uh, I, got, I got a lot of support, but only generally in private. In the Supreme Court judge contacted me, people in the ministries contacted me, uh, partners in law firms contacted me to say, I'm so glad that somebody's finally saying that. But people were really scared to go out and support me in public, because especially there's one editor of the financial business newspaper who's, who's really famous for, for blasting people when he disagrees with them. Uh, he, he went out very strongly against me so he had this uh, editorial his own editorial page he used that four times against me three in one week and wrote things like that uh, if this had been in the 15th century I would have been burned at the stake as a witch and, uh, uh, and um, uh, rich investors wrote in the newspaper why, don't, uh, why doesn't the university stop that woman uh, and uh, one investor also wrote Uh, And what about you other uh, corporate professors, don't you see that there is a need for clarification here? And just a few days later, five of my male colleagues wrote a piece together where they then, as indicated very cleverly, uh, left out the law but discussed the terminology in such a way that it was seen as a support to the investors and the economists. So this was a very clarifying moment for me when it came to the importance of, of being independent, what it actually means to be a professor. I was very clear on the fact that I will go out public with any attempt to, to stop me from saying what I mean. Uh, so this, this editor's lawyer, he threatened my students at a public debate meeting that I organized. He sat uh, and told my students... That if they he he lied and said to them, which we all believed at the time, that he graded exams here at the faculty. So he said to them that if you write that that bullshit that she is uh, preaching there, then I will fail you. And I got this in writing from three of the students that he had threatened them. So so I then of course contacted our administration and said we cannot let this lawyer grade any exams here. And it turned out that he didn't. But it shows uh, shows what kind of uh, tricks uh, they they will use to try to intimidate people and I must say that the the strongest support I got in this was from the students it was a a male student who contacted me first Uh, I'd never met him before I got an email from him saying that he he just wanted to to express his support and sympathy because he thought it was so bad what this editor had written which was the the first I heard of the editor writing anything about me so so that was uh, quite a quite a shock um, but but as the debate went went on, I, I saw more and more clearly that it was the younger generation that saw the significance of of having a principle based view on what the law is actually about, and distinguishing between what the law says and what people do in practice or call it in practice. So and and I when I teach company law, I have the the advanced company law class for the master students, which is an elective. Uh, I teach, of course, the basic uh, company law, all the fundamentals and all the details of the rules. Uh, but But I also put this into the broader sustainability perspective. And I find that students are really excited about this. Some might, of course, go away and not tell me that they were disappointed because they don't think it's practical enough. But I try to do the practical part as well. But I have quite a few students, both male and female, who have come to me and said that they had no idea how important company law was in society how important businesses are and so they come to me with stars in their eyes i want to write master thesis about this i wonder whether it's possible to apply for phd positions so so it's really really exciting to to see this uh, change
0: that must be very satisfying for you personally too congratulations uh, it doesn't surprise me that they would see, ask for you to be burned at the stake like a witch <laughs> but it, it seems to be the general reception i know from talking to other women that that men do not like having to change the rules because mm-hmm. they have to modify their behavior. Mm-hmm. And this is what happens in corporate boards. Have you heard similar stories that men don't, that's the reason why they resist so much is because they have to modify
1: their mm-hmm. own behavior? Mm-hmm. Yes, because I've been uh, open uh, about standing my ground. Uh, there have been quite a few females who have contacted me in different levels and told similar stories. But it's also, it's also quite uh, shocking, actually, to see, even in Norway, which is regarded as such a free and egalitarian society, and in this day and age, that women are scared to speak out. So so I think it's important also to try to, to teach the, the younger generation that, that we are not finished with, uh, with, with, with fighting for freedom, because there are so many other ways... Of discriminating against people and holding them down, whether it's because they have a different gender, or a different ethnic background, or age, there's so many other ways than 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 doing it legally. So the law can be really, really clear and gender neutral, and the reality can uh, can be really tough.
0: That was beata Schofer, professor of law at the University of Oslo, our guest on the Women in Leadership podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions of other people you'd like to hear from in a podcast in the future, do get in touch with us by email. The address is info at womeninleadership.ie or you can contact us via the website womeninleadership.ie. From me, Angie Mazzetti and all the team, goodbye until the next time and take care of yourself.